0: And we're uh, finishing off chapter one now, and uh, particularly this focus on John the Baptist. We heard a little bit about him a few weeks ago, earlier in the chapter, uh, and here we we have a lot more to see what his ministry is all about and how he points us to to Jesus. Here are the last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jewish tradition saw Malachi as the last prophet to be sent until The very last, so he was really the penultimate prophet before the last prophet who would arrive just before the day of the Lord, the time of final judgment when the kingdom of God will be permanently established on earth. So for the Jews, the Old Testament canon was completed at around 420 BC when Malachi lived. No more prophets were sent. No new revelation was given. Of course, that didn't mean that there was no significant history that took place during those four centuries leading up to the time of Jesus. In fact, a lot happened that shaped Jewish ideas and belief, uh, which we see in place by the first century. And some of these beliefs were about how they expected things to unfold in the end times, and who would be involved in bringing them about. And their speculation revolved around three distinct Old Testament prophecies. One was given to Israel as they were preparing to enter the Promised Land. This is Moses speaking, "...the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers." And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Or in other words, I will hold him account for that. Now, this prophecy was partly fulfilled by Joshua. And we'll see that a bit later this year when we work our way through the book of Joshua. But because of the partial fulfilment, it meant they were still looking forward to the arrival of the prophet's who would be like Moses and who would bring the same scale of deliverance that Moses did. This prophet figure was particularly significant for the Samaritans because they only acknowledged the first five books of the Bible as scripture. So for them, there was no prophecy between Moses and this second Moses, the last day. Now John is a prophet but he makes it clear. He is not the fulfilment of Moses' prophecy. Another Old Testament promise, not merely one, but many prophecies about the Christ, the anointed King, which was centred around the covenant made with David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, With your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, your throne shall be established forever. These were the prophecies on people's minds when they were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, waving palm branches and singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. But again, John makes it clear, he is not the Christ. Well, more controversial then was Malachi's prophecy about Elijah. In the time between the Testaments, rabbis discussed Debated the identity of these end time figures. Some thought they were three separate people. Others saw them as three descriptions of one person. And the belief had become popular by the time of Jesus that Elijah and the Christ were separate people, but that it would be literally Elijah himself returning to earth from heaven because Technically, he didn't die, he was taken up into heaven on a chariot. But what might be confusing for us initially is that John says he is not Elijah. Yet Jesus later said very clearly, this, speaking of John, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. So, who was right? Jesus or John the Baptist? Now, some scholars suggest that John didn't fully yet understand his own role in fulfilling Malachi's prophecy. Others say he was just being humble. But well, that's very unlikely because we saw in verse 23 that is very clear on his mission. He quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John knew what God had called him to and which prophecies he was fulfilling but by saying he is, isn't Elijah, he's challenging that belief of the Jews that it would be literally the historical Elijah returning. John still fulfils Malachi's prophecy in that he comes, he's not literally, he's not a reincarnation of Elijah, but he comes in the same spirit as Elijah, following in Elijah's footsteps, doing the same or similar things. Like Elijah... John lived in the wilderness from where he came to speak a message of repentance and he confronted the corrupt authorities of the day. In Elijah's time, that was King Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel and all of the prophets of Baal. In John's day, it was King Herod and Herod's wife Herodias who was the one responsible ultimately for having him put to death. But shockingly, it wasn't pagan prophets of Baal that he condemned, it was the Jewish priests and Pharisees. When Elijah had to flee for for his life from Jezebel, uh, he ended up on Mount Horeb where Moses had received the law And he thought he was the only person left who had remained faithful to the Lord and in his mind this was the end, this was the end of Israel. But the Lord assured him that there was still a faithful remnant left and he told him to return, go and appoint a new king, anoint a new king to rule in place of Ahab. Now, this king's name was Yehu, which means literally Yahweh is he. So, his name symbolically represented and highlighted that the Lord, not Baal, was king of Israel and the true God. So, like Elijah, John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for and to anoint a new king. Of Israel, this king that would replace the corrupt leaders uh, typified in Herod and the priests and the Pharisees. Now there are two things that would have offended these Jewish leaders about John's practice of baptism. Baptism wasn't a widespread practice. Some monastic communities would practice a daily washing ritual but generally baptism was part of the process that a Gentile would undergo when they converted to Judaism. It was a sign that they who had been an outsider were now washed and purified so they could be included in God's covenant people. And baptism was... Self-administered. Converts would baptize or wash themselves. Now, here's John, and he comes and he calls Jews to come and be baptized, to act like Gentile converts. This is how they were to get ready for what is about to come, that for which John is preparing the way. John's baptism declared God is about to do a new thing and it would be so new, so radical, so huge that anyone who wants to be part of it must, so to speak, hit the reset button and start their lives from scratch. They couldn't rely on being a Jew, descended flesh and blood children of Jacob. They couldn't rely on obeying the law and the traditions of the elders. No, they had to come to this new thing as if they were pagan Gentiles, strangers to the covenant, unclean sinners who needed to repent and be converted. Can you imagine how offensive that would have been to these self-righteous priests and Levites and Pharisees, the leaders and teachers of Israel? If anyone was considered to be already in the kingdom, it was them. Not only that, but by being a baptiser, by telling people to come and be baptised by him, John was taking away any claim that anyone might want to make that their entry into this new thing was something that they had done. John transformed baptism from something you do to yourself to something that is done to you. So, to be baptised was to say, in essence, I can't come into this kingdom by my own actions or my own efforts. I must simply stand here, be pushed into the water as if to be drowned, have all of my sin, all of my past put to death and then come out of the water like a helpless newborn baby, washed clean and ready to be received by God into his family. So, John's baptism tells us how it is we are to come into the Kingdom of God, by God's action, not ours. We're all outsiders who need to be brought in, to be washed clean, to be made new, not by our own decision or commitment or actions, but by the sovereign action of the grace of God. We come simply in repentance and faith and Both of those aren't even our own actions, certainly not anything that gives us merit or favour with God. Repentance is simply acknowledging that God is right and I am wrong. All my attempts at righteousness are filthy rags. It's giving up trying to rely on my own righteousness and admitting that the only thing I've I've earned is condemnation. And faith, likewise, is giving up on myself, ceasing from all my works and looking instead to the work of Jesus on the cross. It's trusting in his death on my behalf to take away my sin and trusting in his resurrection on my behalf to guarantee his perfect gift of righteousness. So repentance and faith aren't doing something. Rather, they're ceasing from doing and looking to what is done. So, as a sign of this, baptism is a symbol. It's not something I do. It's a symbol of what's done to me. And so, their question to John, why are you baptising if you're neither the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? In their minds, it only someone like one of these three end time figures would have the authority to come and overturn the established order to imply that all that they have been doing, all the systems they have in place were about to come to an end and be made obsolete as the Kingdom of God broke in. Well, let's see John's answer. Firstly, he says... I baptise with water, which should be obvious because that's what he was literally doing, but he's saying, I'm only baptising with water. My baptism, in the end, is just symbolic of something greater, a baptism not of water, but of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see in verse 33. My baptism is preparing you to receive the real baptizer." Secondly, he says... This one that he's preparing the way for stands among you but despite that you don't know him. Remember what we saw in verses 10 and 11? He was in the world yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. These priests... And Levites and Pharisees, they thought they had it all worked out. They thought they understood all of these prophecies about the Messiah and that they'd have no problem recognising when he came. But John tells them he's already here, in fact he's standing among you and you haven't even spotted him. But he's saying more than that they were unable to identify who he was, as we saw when we looked at verses 10 to 11, Jesus came to a world, to a people who already did not know him, who had already in their hearts rejected him as their creator and redeemer, despite the clear testimony of creation that he is their creator, the clear testimony of their consciences that he is their judge, and the crystal clear testimony of the scriptures, the law that he is their covenant God. They didn't know Jesus, they didn't spot Jesus as their Messiah, not just because his glory was veiled in human flesh, but because their hearts were darkened and all of their great learning, all of their great theology was in the end ignorance. Thirdly, he tells them, that it's not his John the Baptist authority they should be focusing on because he's just the prelude to the one whose sandals he's not worthy to untie. If you are wealthy and powerful enough to own slaves, one of their jobs when you arrived home would be to untie your sandals and to wash your feet as you came into your house. Now, compared to the authority of this one who is coming and is already standing among them, John is lower, he's saying, than the lowest of household slaves. Now, later Jesus would say, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet even this great man, the the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one who's been sent for this noble task of announcing the arrival of the Messiah is in comparison to him, to King Jesus, lower than a slave. Now, I believe John, the Gospel writer, wants us and records these words of John the Baptist because he wants us to remember them when we come to the end of Jesus' ministry. There we see him, just before eating the Passover, him who is the Messiah, the King of the Universe, takes off his outer garments, kneels down, unties his disciples' feet, oh, sandals and washes their feet. John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice the terminology there, his own, Who are in the world. His own to whom he came who did not receive him. In the world which did not know him. To these he came and he humbled himself to serve. Not just by washing his disciples feet but by giving up his life as a ransom for many. Now take note how verse 29 begins the next day. This isn't just trivial information. He says it again in verse 35 and 43. Now John the Gospel writer is making a point by counting the days but it's a point I won't elaborate on until next week. I might give a prize to anyone who can do their homework and tell me why John is counting the days. But this next day was the day for Jesus to be made... Publicly known. And there's something that should surprise us. John the Baptist says in verse 31 that even he did not know him until that moment. Now, the reason that should surprise us is Jesus' mother and Elizabeth, John's mother, were related. Mary visited Elizabeth when they were both pregnant, and John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb when he heard Mary's greeting. It's extremely unlikely that in the 30 years since, John and Jesus never met. Maybe John had no idea that when the time came to prepare the way for the Christ that it would turn out to be his second cousin once removed. But again, that would be misunderstanding what he's saying. The key is in the first words that he says about Jesus. John receives a revelation of Jesus' identity, an identity that up to this point has not been spoken of. See, there was another prophetic end time promise in the Old Testament alongside the promises of the prophet and the Christ and Elijah. And it's brought out in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgement he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This is the Lamb of God the one that God himself would send to be stricken for the transgression of his people, the sacrifice for sin. This is the lamb that Abraham spoke of when he said to his son Isaac, God will provide the lamb for the offering. It's the lamb that every Passover lamb and every lamb sacrificed for over a thousand years pointed to. See, as the Christ, Jesus fulfilled the kingly role that came from David. As the prophet, he fulfilled, obviously, the prophetic role that came from Moses. But the picture was incomplete until we see the priestly role that came from Aaron. The prophet speaks the word of the Lord to the people, the king rules over his people in justice, but only the priest can make an offering to atone for the sins of the people. So, he says, not behold the Christ or behold the prophet, but behold the Lamb, the priest who would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Then in verses 32 to 34, we hear from John himself how how it is he received this complete revelation of Jesus' identity. It was a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It was so powerful and so strong was the Spirit's presence that it was visible to the physical eye. In Luke's Gospel it's even described as in bodily form. And it was this visible manifestation along with the fact that the Spirit not only descended but remained. These three key leadership roles in Israel, of prophet, king and priest, they all required an anointing of the Holy Spirit for them to fulfil their responsibilities but the Spirit's anointing on them was limited. No one person in Israel was ever anointed to fill all three roles. It was It was only one or at the most two. And the Spirit was only given for a limited time for them to fulfil their task or at best until they died. When David prayed in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me, he wasn't praying about his personal salvation. It was because he knew that because of his sin, He was disqualified from being king, just like his predecessor was. The Spirit's anointing upon him could be taken away. Well, the Spirit came upon Jesus in great power because of who he is, the Son of God, and he remained on him because he was free from sin, perfectly holy and pure, at no risk of being disqualified ready to step up and to step out and to fulfil not one or two, but all three anointed roles of prophet, king and priest. But see, it's more than just Jesus in his role as prophet, king and priest. See the end of verse 33. This is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the baptism, the real baptism that John's water baptism pointed to and the baptism that we practice points to. Jesus is the true baptizer Because the Spirit has been given to him in all of his fullness and because he remains on him, Jesus is qualified to give the Spirit to others. Now, this is unprecedented. Nowhere in the Old Testament did a person have the authority or power to give the Holy Spirit to another. It was always God's prerogative to anoint whomever he chose. He would occasionally use a human being to perform an action that symbolised what God was doing. But in Jesus, we see the God-man, who as a man has received the fullness of the Spirit on our behalf, And with the authority of the Father, he pours out the Spirit on all who have faith in him. As I mentioned with David, this baptising with the Spirit isn't about being saved, it's about being commissioned. Now, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they're wrong when they say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second experience that we need to seek after we're saved The New Testament makes it clear this baptism comes as a package deal with the Spirit's work of making Jesus known to us and enabling us to repent and trust in him. But they're right when they say that every Christian needs to understand that the Holy Spirit's work in you is both to bring you to faith in Jesus and to empower and equip you for kingdom service. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is prophet, king and priest to us and we desperately need that, otherwise we'd never be saved. But in this role, he also makes us, the church, not individuals on their own, but the church into a prophetic, kingly, priestly community. The church and every member of it has been anointed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not to sit around and wait to go to heaven when we die, but to stand up and to be on about the business of our Father's kingdom, just as Jesus is. Jesus stands among us, not only as one who says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest, that's the, that's the invitation to be saved, but also... As the one who says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Both are the work of the Holy Spirit, sent by the Son and the Father. It's by the Holy Spirit that we know we are children of God. By him we cry, Abba, Father. But it's also by the Holy Spirit that we can declare Jesus is Lord and be empowered to make that declaration to those around us, even when it means laying down our lives for saying it as our brothers and sisters around the world experience. Now, it's significant that we've come to this passage as we come to the end of a year and the start of a new year. It's an arbitrary date set by man, Uh, the 1st of January, but we all have that sense of we're saying goodbye to the old and we're stepping into what's ahead of us. I've normally been a bit sceptical about New Year's resolutions because very few of the ones I've ever made have ever been kept except for the one I made a few years ago which was a resolution to not make any New Year's resolutions. But there can be a place for us to say By the grace of God, with his help, his empowering, I resolve to make this change, to do this new thing, to leave this old thing behind. Now, we need to do so without any illusion that we're going to accomplish it in our strength. We must recognise God's sovereign right to overturn all of our plans. But John the Baptist He was heralding for Israel not just a new year but a new covenant, a new age that arrived with the incarnation and the life and the ministry of Jesus. He wasn't calling people to start a new project or accomplish great things for God but for them simply to come in repentance over their sin and failures of the past and to entrust themselves to their covenant God and brace themselves for the new thing that he was about to do. Last Sunday I was talking to someone uh, at church and they were saying how difficult and awkward it can sometimes be to bring up his faith with others. But he said, maybe, maybe I'll make a New Year's resolution to just... Speak naturally and openly about my faith in Jesus. Well, there's a resolution I believe God will honour because that's his desire for all of his children. It's the reason why Jesus pours out and anoints us with the Holy Spirit. So that may be a good resolution for you to make or there may be something else that the Spirit prompts you about how you can serve him and his people in the year ahead. We've saved communion until the end of the service, uh, not by my planning or anyone else's planning, but the Lord sovereignly overrode our plans for the service today and things didn't happen the way they'd been set out on paper and he does that sometimes. But its I think it's a significant time for us to share as the last thing we do before our closing hymn in this uh, this table. Here we. Well, I switched on. Okay. It's at this table that we um, we don't come here making any promises or pledges or resolutions. And we can't come and bargain with God and say, God, I promise I'm not going to do that thing again or I promise I'm going to do this for you in this year. This is the table where we come and we see Jesus' resolution for us. Jesus resolved. He made a resolution when he stepped into this world and took on our flesh to head towards that cross for us. As he sat there in the the room with his disciples, with the bread and with the wine, uh, the eating and the drinking was his pledge to them. This is my body that I'm about to give up for a sacrifice. This is my blood which I'm about to have poured out for the forgiveness of your sins.